Well, I hope uh, already God has spoken to you and working with you and on you. Um, it is such a blessing to have uh, not only a team like this, but leaders like Andy and John and, and, uh, and so many others in our church uh, to lead us. And um, I hope that you have followed their leadership through the Spirit today. Um, certainly, I will, I will comment on, you know, as we are moving into this capital campaign um, it, it should not be anything weird. I mean, any spiritual exercise is a normal activity in the church. And so the fact that we would do this is not something strange that we would in community decide. Um, so we had, we, we talked to some people this week. I got to have uh, dinner with some people this week and it was, a uh, it was kind of humorous. The, uh, the people who are kind of walking us through this said, Hey, you need to, you know, you start by telling them about the need in regards to a capital campaign. And so I stood out looking at these teachers and leaders and so many who, who work in the children's area. <laughs> like, uh, who am I to tell you the need? You're the ones who are over there every Sunday morning and, and people who are over there right now and, um, and uh, to recognize. I know last week we had, I think, 27 children in the third grade or fourth grade class. And I mean, there's definitely a need. And so there's, there should be, that's, that's not a hard uh, conversation but talking about it from a spiritual perspective, from what God has for us, um, that's what I'm really excited about. But I want to finish up last week's conversation about the gospel, and, and I'm going to kind of wrap that up with yet again another very clear understanding of what the gospel is. Um, and so, you know, we know from Ephesians 2, that very famous, we talked to Ephesians a, a year or two ago, that very famous, you, you were dead. When Paul is speaking to the people in Ephesus, he's reminding them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I mean, so, so you, you had nothing really to offer. You had no way to save yourself. You, had really no, you were dead. And so if, if you've ever, sometimes we can know that upstairs. We can, we can see that in our head. We can, we can spiritually understand that. We talked this last Wednesday night about the... That should not be weird understanding for us. I mean, we are all just stalling death physically as well. I mean, the, the fact that our fail-safe experience is death is not, should not be strange. Our fail-safe experience right now is death. If we just all decided to hang out here for a couple of weeks and, and sit here and not move, then we would all be dead in a couple of weeks. I mean, that's, if we don't eat, if we don't uh, sleep, if we don't drink, if we don't breathe, I mean, if we don't do these things... We're, we don't last long. This is, life is, is, is something that is not, in a weird way, it's almost like it's not natural, like a garden that does not tend it. It, it dies. It fails. And we're that way. Our marriages are that way. If, if we don't invest in a, in a healthy way in loving other people, the natural state of our marriages is divorce. It, it, that's the natural state. If we're not investing and engaging and, and, and um, serving, all the different things that God calls us to do in regards to these relationships, the natural state of human relationships is failure, is death. We, we are a, a fallen people, and so the natural state of our bodies, of these bodies, is death. That shouldn't be odd to us that, our, that the natural state of our spiritual self is also dead, that that's its natural state until God brings us to alive. Um, the dead is where we are. He came to, he sent his son to save us, that, that magical, incredible phrase when in, 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 in Ephesians 2, when the, the two words that we talked about a couple of years ago, those two, the most powerful words in the whole Bible, but God. So here we are, here's our state, but God, and that's the reminder, he's going to do something, he accomplishes something. So let's look at some of the things, just, just in case you've ever wondered, what, what are some of the things that, 
when we say salvation, that's such a that's such kind of a churchy term. Um, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be saved or born again or, or all those different terminologies that if you've grown up in church, you're comfortable with, and if you didn't, they, they don't mean anything to you. And so the reason we talk in terms of saved, one, it's a term that Jesus uses and Paul uses and others. But for example, one of the things that we are saved from is the just wrath of God. So we're all rebels against God. It, it's, that is a, if, if you didn't know that about yourself, I, I hate to be the one to tell you, you are self-seeking. You, you want to be the God of your life. Um, that's not about you. That's about me. It's about all of us. It's our desire to be God. We are the highest authority that we know. The only person we answer to is us. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. That is the, that's every one of us. I mean, we at some level, that's why that temptation worked on Eve and Adam. Oh, no, see, you, you could be like God too. Oh, oh, really? Okay, that sounds like, that sounds awesome. And so that is the, that's what sells us. I want to be the one in charge. That's us. But God, so rightly, God was offended at our desire to take his place, each of us, all of us, but here's what's amazing. In Romans 5, we find out for while we were enemies, we were reconciled. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So one of the things that Jesus came to save us from was the right and just wrath of Almighty God. Also, the eternal consequences of sin, the, the guilt that we rightly carried, and the consequences of that guilt. Each of us sins. All of us sin. As a race, we sin. As an individual, we sin. Sin meaning to fall short of what God has for us. Um, and we all do that. It's, it's something that is a necessary part. It's, it's interesting, I, I read years ago, I don't remember if it was Swindoll who said this first, but somebody who talked about that the hard part is not getting people saved. The hard part is getting people lost. Um, is that we have to come to that place of recognizing, I am lost and, and I don't understand, having lived a human life till this point, I don't understand how anyone can be in denial of that. Um, the level of denial and delusion that it must take to think you've got it all together, no matter who you are, to have that thought, I mean, that's, anytime I hear that, I want to be like, really? So, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to record the next two weeks of your life, and then I'm gonna, we're going to watch that together, and I'm going to bet I see a bunch of signs of you being clueless that you are just as lost and confused as you... I know you think you got it all together, but I'll bet we show lots of examples of it. But, but in, uh, in John, in the very beginning of the book of John, the letter, I mean, uh, the gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It, Peter says in his gospel, his first gospel, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So we, the just wrath of God, the eternal consequences of sin. Another thing... How about this one? This, is, this one has some real therapeutic power, but for all of us, he has saved us, according to Peter, from the empty way of life handed down to us by our forefathers. How many, how many of us, when we look back, when we look at our parents' marriages or our parents' lives or whatever, and we think, wow, man, they just messed this up. It's, it's, uh, I've told you guys before, until I came to this church, I had never had this experience, but since here I've heard it twice, that when I've done premarital counseling with a couple, and one of the questions is, do you know a marriage that you would like your marriage to be like it? That you would say, that's a marriage, I would love for our marriage to be like their marriage. And until I came here, I had never had a couple say, my parents. Never. I had never had a couple who was getting married say, I want my marriage to be like my parents' marriage. And I'm talking that's dozens and dozens of couples I had worked with. Here, I had a Newberry daughter and a Carswell daughter tell me 
like my parents, which is just, I was so blindsided, I actually was like, Real? okay, really? Listen, <laughs> you don't have to just say that because I know your parents. It's okay. Um, so it is, it's an amazing thing and terrifying. Most of us have inherited an empty way of life handed down to us, and Jesus saves us from that to give our lives purpose and meaning. He disarmed the forces of darkness in our lives, the power of sin and death and evil and, and demons and the devil. He disarms them. They don't cease to exist, but he's, he's rendered them um, pretty impotent. He disarmed, in Colossians 3 it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Maybe one of the things that should make us the most freaky among human beings is that he has removed from us the necessity to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of death. Now, maybe we are, but we don't, we don't have to be anymore. It is the mocking, Paul mocking death. Oh, from back, from back in the Old Testament, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Uh-huh, see, what do you got now? That's the, it's, a, it's a mocking. He's, he's talking smack to death. 1 Corinthians, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So though we may fear death, we don't have to. It's not necessary anymore. We've been saved from that. Slavery to sin, not just the eternal consequences of sin, but the slavery now to sin. We don't have to keep constantly sinning. Um, it doesn't have to rule us. It doesn't have to control us. Now, we do because we're frail creatures, but it doesn't own us anymore. We aren't slaves to it. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the concept of slaves. Romans 6.18 says, And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves to righteousness. He has rescued us from the fear of God and the fear of death and the fear of meaninglessness and the fear of slavery to sin. He's also saved us to some things. He saved us to the knowledge of who we really are intended to be. It's amazing to me now looking at, I'm going to reference this later, with, the, with, with one or two very powerful exceptions, the version of Christianity that I feel like I was raised with until at least my teens was a boring one. Um, the, the afterlife, heaven sounded boring. The Christian life was boring. Church services were boring. Now, I know I'm an easily bored person, so I, I, I don't necessarily hold that against everybody. I've got my own issues with boredom. But, but it just seemed boring. The Christian life was apparently extremely tame. You never take any risks. You did what was easiest. You know, you kind of took the... And maybe as a kid it felt that way because it meant I was less likely to be punished by my parents if I chose the Christian option. Maybe that's all it... But let me just tell you, if you're living a boring Christian life, my heart goes out. You don't have to live a boring Christian life. Um, there are people in our midst right now, people who are sitting around you. It's part of why we've got to have discipleship as an integral part of this church. There are people you're sitting around right now who have been missionaries to all parts of the world, who have risked death and life and limb over and over again for the cause of the gospel. There are people who are investing in people's lives in ways that you, you would may not possibly believe. And if we don't hear those, if we don't engage in those, if we don't read those stories or, or seek out the discipleship of those people, we miss out. I will tell you, my Christian life is not boring. Um, when, I, when I fail to live what Christ has called me to, it, it sometimes gets boring. So if you're living the boring Christian life, I'll just encourage you, you're missing out on something. It, it is something great that he has called us to, a world-changing life. 
um, an abundant life, not just as an activity level, but the truth of who we are and the, the idea of, of the, the salvation, the postponement of salvation. I know it's kind of a weird terminology, but the truth is God has called us to salvation starting now. Yes, there is a final expression of that when we enter into his new heaven and, and on his new earth under his new heaven and this new city and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is we, we have this mindset of like, well, salvation is something that comes later. But the truth is salvation starts when the heart is changed. And too many of us quench that. Our hearts don't change. Our lives don't change. And that, that means we're not living out what he has for us. He started saving us immediately. And I want to discourage you from, if your mindset is, for anyone in the room, if your mindset is, I'll, I'll do that someday. I'll put my faith in Christ someday. Let me tell you why we do an invitation every Sunday. So I, I was um, an elder across the street at Bethel for a few years. And one of the things we wrestled through regularly in the Bible churches is that they don't usually do an invitation at the end of the service. And, and that was such an odd thing for me, having grown up in a, in a Baptist church and even in a, for a little while a Methodist church that had an, an, an invitation every week. And so it was hard for me to get used to that. And, and I even was kind of gently opposed to that. Like, I, I feel like we ought to be making an opportunity for people to respond. And listen, I know you may not literally come forward and respond, but there's something about that reminder that like, hey, now is the time to respond that I think I agree is very healthy. Even if you do it at your chair, that your mind should be going there. When we do an invitation, you should be asking yourself, oh, wait, I just sat and listened. And at some point, Chris's voice kind of became a, a, like the, the peanuts teacher, you know, wah, wah, wah. And you're going to, when anyone who talks longer than about 15 minutes, there are going to be moments when you fade in and out for a second at a time. That may be because you're focusing on what was just said or taught or came from Scripture, and you need to focus on that. That's nothing wrong with that. But at the end, we shouldn't be done and go like, oh, good, okay, oh, done. This isn't political science class, right? This, is, this isn't some of your college, this isn't college chemistry when I would sit and they would talk and I had no idea what they were talking about and then class was over at some point. That's how I knew when class was over is when other kids got up to leave. And so that was a, I, did, I didn't understand it at all. But this, is, this is meant to be a response. Like when we're done hearing God's word, we're supposed to ask ourselves, Okay, what, what does the Holy Spirit have for me from that? How should that change me? Not, not because of the magic words of the preacher, but because of the power through the Holy Spirit of God's Word being laid before us. And so I would encourage you, the real heart of why we have an invitation. There's a tradition to it as well. Um, uh, the evangelist D.L. Moody was kind of famous for, and he has become famous among preachers for lots of reasons. Um, one of them is this. He preached in the 1870s. He was preaching in Chicago. On October 8th, 1871, D.L. Moody preached in Chicago and taught from Matthew 27, verse 22, which is, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And the whole concept of his sermon was, What are you going to do with this Jesus, who is called Christ? How are you going to respond to him and his gospel? And at the end of the sermon, he said, he ran out of time, and he said, you know what, um, I want you to take this week and focus on this gospel. And when we're back here next week, I want you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any, anybody historically savvy enough to know what happened on October 
8th and 9th, starting just a few hours after his sermon, the Great Chicago Fire, which a huge portion of the city burned. Hundreds died. Hundreds, tens of thousands were left homeless. Obviously, he, he never got a chance to really do what he wanted to do the next week, but hundreds died. Apparently, he's under the impre- he was under the impression, Moody was, that some of the people who died had been in that service that night. And he actually said later that he would prefer to remove a limb off of his body than to ever offer the gospel again without giving people an opportunity to respond. And so I, I, the same thing, whatever it is, week after week, when we, call for, when we call for an invitation, that's not just for people to join the church. That's one way to respond. But more powerfully in your heart, how do you respond to God's word? How will you respond to learning that God has offers to save you from this and to save you for these things? And if you're living any, if you are a believer who's put your faith in Christ and your life doesn't look like these, what's off? When you compare this and this, why don't they look right? What's out of alignment? What will we do with this Jesus? Do we submit to his gracious plan for salvation or do we, what do we do with his teaching? Even if we're a believer, what do we do with his teachings? What do we do with his lessons? I now do a whole weekend seminar called, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor? It's a marriage seminar because here's something that struck me is that we have all these great teachings about how to treat people. But what I've learned is that one of the places we don't treat our spouses according to Jesus' teachings on just being a neighbor to people. That if we just took the neighboring passages and applied those to our marriages, they would revolutionize our marriages. But instead, what we love to do is we love to love people who we don't ever actually have to sacrifice for. Um, hopefully in a few months we're going to have Compassion International come and, and spend a whole weekend with us. But one of the things that's interesting to me is so we've, we've gone through, we've worked through a, um, and given to a handful of different Compassion kids. It's kids who live in other parts of the world. Right now we have two who live in Kenya. Let me tell you, they're easy to love. It's easy to love a kid who lives on another continent. Because I don't have to deal with them. Right? They're probably brats. I mean, my guess is there are times when their moms are just driven crazy by them, right? Like, would you please listen? I'm sure that happens. So it's easy to love someone who I never have to actually... It's easy to be a neighbor to someone who lives in Kenya. All I got to do is send them a few letters every year and, and send some money, and we're good. But, but am I being a good neighbor to my own children or to my spouse or to the people I work most closely with? And sometimes I, I'm not. So for us to be revolutionized, changed by this gospel is what we're called to. Do we deny it? I, I grew up, um, one of my, the youth pastors who was a little bit on edge, uh, which is kind of what makes, sometimes that makes for a good youth pastor, right? Maybe just a little bit. Anyway, so um, just a little bit shy of, of, of straight on the bubble. So um, this guy was a little bit crazy, but he, he came in one Sunday. I remember this so well. He came in one Wednesday night, and he took up all our Bibles. The first thing he did was take up all our Bibles. He was, had his car parked right by the entrance and his trunk open and he made all of us throw our Bibles in the trunk and when we were all there, he closed the trunk. He was like, none of you are getting these back for at least two weeks. And we were like, what? As if, you know, that was some huge tragedy for us. But I read it every day, right? So, and so he said, um, he goes, um, instead we're gonna do something else. So we all came in and he had a Bible. Now he had wise enough to talk to the pastor and the leaders about this before he did this, but he had a Bible in his hand and he started reading from some of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And so he gets this section where, you know, where we're talks about obeying parents. He says, how many of you, how many of you, I mean, you really do that, that you're like, in your heart, you're like, you know what, I realize in order to obey God, I need to obey my parents. Or how many of you are always looking for, a, how do I get out of obeying my parents? And so 
We're all kind of standing there. And he goes, yeah, I agree. I just don't like that teaching. So he just tears that page out of his Bible and throws it on the floor. Like, I just, I just don't like that teaching either. I don't think it should apply to my life. And then he starts, he starts turning to pages in the Bible and reading the scripture out loud. And, and we realize what he's doing with each one of them. And as he gets to each one, we're like, yeah, we don't do it. He's like, yeah, me neither. I don't. And he just tears. The, the, the Bible is now like laying in pieces. He gets like to the book of James and he's like, this whole book needs to go. Like, I just, this book convicts me every time. Like, I don't want this thing in here. And so, and so he's leaving these pages of the Bible around. And I know some of you are disturbed by this. And, and we, that was the whole purpose, by the way, was for us to be disturbed by it. Well, then what he does is at the end, at the end of the night, and he, teach, he did a good job teaching through it, is he handed us he's just one page, one random page. Like, this is all you get for the next two weeks. He's like, I know most of you have like 14 Bibles in your house, but I want you to focus on this one page, whatever it is. And all the way through college, that page was pinned up on my, was from 1 Peter, by the way, was pinned up on my wall. And, and as a reminder to me, by the way, that's how, it, it's, it, we're disturbed by the idea of tearing out pages. In, in the third world, that's actually often how they do the Bible, is their tribe or whatever will get one, and they will tear it all, all the pages out separately, and each person gets one, and then they trade pages, which makes them still probably reading more than the average American Christian does out of their scripture. So, so as disturbing as that may be, understand, of course, it is so much more offensive to God that our Bibles are whole and in one piece sitting on a shelf somewhere, not impacting our lives. That's what we're called to. As believers, we are saved to live out the truth. What an amazing gift. We don't see it that way sometimes. One of the things he teaches us about, that Jesus teaches us about, is when we listen and change and repent, how we do that um, is in regards to prayer. So I'm going to jump into this today. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' parables. Um, each, of his, each of his teachings on these parables. Parables are a powerful thing. Um, they're tough for us. We don't often like the parables because they can be confusing to us or we, we don't always know what our theological view is going to be on these or whatever. But um, as we look at these, as we start 21 days of prayer, so today we're going to look at two of Jesus' key teachings on the parables, two of his key parables on prayer. We ask for prayer. We pray because we actually, this isn't a gimmick. Um, for many of you, you may feel like, right, well, you know, making a church decision, we ought to pray, or, or that's, you know, we're supposed to do that. Let's check that box off. Okay, pray like we do at dinner or whatever. You're just supposed to do that. Um, I would say this is a desperate thing. Now, this is a big decision. It's a big decision to raise money. It's a big decision to build a building. It's a big decision to use God's money this way. Um, I will, you will, as long as I am here, you will see me wrestle through spending money on building. It's, it's hard for me. I don't, I don't, it is a struggle for me every time to feel like, is this the best use of God's money? That with $800 million worth of church buildings around the United States, do we need more? And it's a challenge to answer. It is always going to be a challenge for me. For me in this situation, as we're looking at children who God is sending here for some reason, it feels to me like a stewardship. We either do well for these families or we fail to. And for whatever reason, they are, you guys are coming here and bringing your children. I'm coming here and bringing all my children. Our kids need to be loved in the name of Jesus Christ and taught well, I do believe they face a harsher Christian life than any of us have faced. And we need to be preparing them for that and teaching them week after week. And by the way, them seeing that it's us 
teaching them week after week is vital. There's nothing wrong inherently with hiring people to help, but that says something to children when they realize that you have to hire people to teach them. And so, though there's a place for that to come alongside and help, you have to keep in mind, they need to see that it is their parents and other people's parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents who are taking the time to pour out their life, to teach them, to prepare them for the Christian life. They need to experience that. So, I, 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 that's vital. The prayer for this is very real. We want God to lead in this, and we want to hear what he has for us. And we want to listen to God's leadership. As you're thinking about, are you going to financially invest in this building project? Do what God leads you to do. And I don't know in your Christian life how you've learned to hear from God, but I would, whatever that is, listen. Don't, when we pray, we don't just chatter endlessly. We also stop and listen. James tells us that, that James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the, the son of Mary and Joseph probably. And so... Um, he writes, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Um, do we not have the James? Did I not give you the James passage? Um, this is a key thing. We need to ask first. We need to be asking for his wisdom and then listen. Believe that he will give us wisdom Right after, so something, Jesus, it tells us um, in Luke that Jesus goes and prays. That doesn't tell us where in Luke chapter 11. He just goes and prays. And, and then when he's done praying, something about the way he prays is weird to his disciples. And they say, uh, could you teach us to do that? And so then he gives the Lord's Prayer, which anyone in the church who's been in the church their whole life knows. I grew up in Episcopal church, so I know the trespasses versions with two evers. That's a... Um, uh, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. That was always my favorite line because in a room full of people, it sounds like snakes. Trespass against us. I loved that as a kid. And, and, then, and then that is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So two evers means Episcopal. One ever, Catholic. Um, and, then, and then if you're a more updated version of Christianity, often then you've got debts rather than trespasses, which is a better translation because all I knew as a trespass was that I wasn't supposed to walk on people's property, which I did constantly, but I was getting forgiven for it every time I did this prayer. And I owned no property, so it was easy for me to forgive people for walking on mine because and that, that never happened. So it was, a, it was a great trade for me. Like, I could walk past the no trespassing signs with no fear. Um, again, which I did constantly. However, Jesus, here's what's funny, is the teaching of Jesus right after the Lord's Prayer continues like this. And he said to them, this is a parable, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him something because he is his friend, because of his impudence, he will rise up and give him what he needs. So at the end of the Lord's Prayer, this is what Jesus continues on when he's talking in the book of Luke because of his impudence. Is the message of this parable really, you need to ask God impudently for what you want? Isn't that an amazing picture? That seems to be the parable. The purpose of a parable is to teach a truth. It's a story meant to teach a truth. And Jesus here is teaching them about prayer. 
And he's just done the Lord's Prayer. Kingdom, power, and the glory forever, ever, and amen. And then he tells this. Really, though even a lazy, sleeping neighbor who doesn't want to get up and help you will because you're pounding on his door in the middle of the... You've got enough guts to pound on his door in the middle of the night and you're brazen enough to ask for his help in the middle of the night. That's us. If, if people come to us, we may give help grudgingly. I mean, how many of you have ever found yourself in the moment when there's someone who's sick or they're in a need or something like that and you ask... Do you need anything? And in your heart, you really hope the answer is these, the socially acceptable, no, we're good, right? Like, please, please don't need anything. Please, I, don't, I don't have time for you to need anything. I, don't, I can't need you to need anything. And if they go like, actually, yes, could you run to the store? And you're like, dead gummit. <laughs> like, no, I, but since you're asking, right? That is a, it's, it, that's the impudent side of us. Fine, I'll help because you're, and that seems to be the picture. We may give grudgingly, but we don't want to be thought of as bad neighbors, even when our motives are impure. Fine, I'll help. How about this one? This one is really st stunning that Jesus does this parable on prayer. This is in Luke 18, seven chapters later. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So notice Luke for the slow people in the crowd, is telling you in advance, this is going to be the point of this parable. Okay, The point of the parable that you're about to hear is going to be, keep asking and don't lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. In there, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, I love the idea of him saying this exact words to himself, Though I neither fear God nor man, nor respect man, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by continually coming before me. Really? This is a parable about prayer. This is a parable about how we should keep praying and not lose heart. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day or night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? How does God relate to an annoying, to an annoyed neighbor? How does God relate to an unrighteous judge? This may help you. This passage begins with that Jesus came to an unnamed village. And immediately ten lepers come to him. There's a very good possibility that what that means, many, many teachers and scholars on this think that Jesus had just come to a leper village, which is why it goes unnamed. It had no name. Leper villages, leper colonies were outside of the main village because lepers weren't allowed in the village walls. So they build their own villages in between cities, which is exactly where Jesus is. He's walking between Samaria and Jericho. And so somewhere in between there, he seems to have come to a leper village. And his entourage, which always made up of a few scribes and Pharisees who were looking for a chance to accuse him, his disciples, a handful of other people, and it seems that Jesus may have stopped at a leper village, which would have been incredibly uncomfortable, especially for the Pharisees and the scribes. And so he sits down. The first thing that happens is he, he heals some lepers, and then he starts teaching this teaching. Now, if anybody can relate to thinking of God as an unjust judge, wouldn't you think it would be lepers? People who were sick and slowly dying, who were outcasts from society, how often were they praying to God to save them, to rescue them? 
Was this a constant thing for them as they suffered from these diseases? They are poor examples of being helped and finding justice, these people. An unnamed village, broken, isolated, untouchable people, people who can imagine God being like a sleepy neighbor or an unjust judge. So I'm going to end with this thought for today. Pick this up next time as we continue to look at prayer. And I tell you, and it will be given to you. This is the continuation, by the way. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. For what father among you? If his son asked for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asked for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm going to stop on that thought today. Luke says about Jesus that Jesus is saying that God wants to give his Holy Spirit to you and to me. That God's Spirit would lead us. It's the best gift he has that comes with salvation. So yes, there are times when it feels to us like we're banging on the door of an unjust judge. Maybe it feels that way to us. But the truth is what we're doing is we're coming to a father who loves to give good gifts and he wants to give us good gifts, especially the gift of his own spirit to lead us and to guide us. And so as we are folk emphasizing, I hope that you don't have to take 21 days of prayer to pray for 21 days. But in the next 21 days, we want to emphasize praying for God to lead us in this experience together. I love that some leaders in the church have put together these 20, literally 21 little mini videos to run that you could, you could click on Facebook or wherever and they'll, they'll pull up for you and you can watch those and be in, maybe hopefully inspired or encouraged in some way. That took a lot of work and someone took care of that. Not me, I promise you. That's a, those are some powerful things that we're doing. All the little reminders are coming from one another for us to pray. Again, this is not a gimmick. Our prayer is that God's spirit would speak to each one of us It is a big deal to tell people, biblically, to tell people, we don't have room for your child this morning in this service. That's a sobering thing for us to ask, but we're on our way there. That's a sobering thing, and it should give us pause to ask, God's Spirit, how would you have us solve this? And I don't know the answer for all of us. I don't know the answer for each of us. I don't even yet know the answer for me. We're praying too. So I ask that you would continue to pray for this, not just this, but for all the ministries. We are each, each one of us key members of God's kingdom, and this church is a small little piece of that kingdom, and how we can be involved with that is what we're asking. So whatever that is, let's pray. Father, and we do come before you, and we pray for your leadership. God, I ask for the leadership and the, and, and the voice, the inspiration the whatever it is from your spirit that will lead us. God, you have led us this far. You're accomplishing great things through us and often despite us. Lord, I pray that you will continue to do so because of who you are. God, today as we celebrate together, as as we eat together and hopefully laugh together and enjoy each other's company, the good gift of one another, I pray that you would guide us whatever you have for us. God, for those... Um, for whom it's a huge blessing to have 
the meetings and the conversations and the handouts and the materials. Awesome. God, I thank you for those people willing to create those. God, for those who, who you've already spoken to and you've already told them in their hearts, this is what I would have you do. We know you're not impressed by amounts, but you are impressed by our faithfulness to you. That's what marvels, what you marvel is when we have enough faith to trust in you yet again. God, I pray for that type of trust. I pray that you would change us through the power of your word. You are not an unjust judge. That's us. You're not an annoyed neighbor. That's us. But if we who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more would you love to give us your Holy Spirit? Give us that spirit, Lord, now we ask. Fall, help him to fall on us in our hearts in new ways. We ask in your son's name. Amen.